0: A DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour, the LARB Radio Hour. Are you looking for another great literary podcast? Look no further. Look to the LARB Radio Hour. It's actually a half hour long, but hey, they're aspirational. The LARB Radio Hour. Is a weekly variety show featuring interviews with authors, screenwriters, poets, playwrights. There are book recommendations. There are amusing analyses of the latest films, television series, and, of course, more books, the LARB Radio Hour. Search for it over at iTunes or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Or just find the show at the LA Review of Books website. They post a new episode every Thursday at lareviewofbooks.org, the LARB Radio Hour. It's a literary podcast. Go and download it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people.
1: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Jake, stated what a struggle, you know?
0: It was incredible. You I know, mean, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy just one person at just right, one folks. time here we go again right. this is it right. this is other people this is how you're managing your situation this is basically just a bunch of code how's it going out there what's happening where are you are you okay my name is brad listy i'm in los angeles california it's nice to be with you uh i appreciate you tuning in my guest today is naomi munawira her new novel is called what lies between us available now from saint martin's press i'll be in conversation with naomi momentarily uh before we begin i did uh, open the floor to questions i was just on twitter And I opened the floor to questions, and uh, some people on Twitter were tweeting at me, uh, at the other people, uh, Twitter feed, at at other PPL. My friend Mira Gonzalez says, hey Brad, what's your favorite dessert? Actually, you know what? Uh, I should get some question and answer music uh, playing, shouldn't I? Let me get some music. All right, so, uh, you know, some of my Twitter followers asked me some questions, and I'm going to try to answer as many of them as I can. My friend Mira Gonzalez, at MiraGans, says, uh, Brad, what's your favorite dessert and how often do you eat it? What's my favorite dessert? Probably bread pudding. Like, really good bread pudding. Or, like, some sort of berry crumble. And I eat it very infrequently because I don't make it myself. I have to be out at a restaurant that has very good bread pudding. But, like, really, really good bread pudding is really good, in my view. Even though the fact that I would say that bread pudding... Like the actual, uh, name of it does not sound appetizing to me. Bread pudding. I mean, I guess maybe bread pudding. Maybe pudding doesn't sound appetizing, but bread sounds appetizing. But the two of them together sort of freaks me out. And yet? Mira then says, uh, Brad, how old do you think you'll be when you die? I'm not really sure. I, you know, I think I, when I, when I try to answer this question to myself or to other people, I sometimes say 111. So let's just go with that. I'm going to be 111 when I die. Andrew Arnold at Andrew underscore Arnold 10 says, Brad, what would you wait in line for? I think I would wait in line for like a private audience with Don DeLillo. (laughs) I would wait in a long line just to like have an hour just to like sit in a room and talk to him not on uh, not rec- record it but just to like hang out with him I'm very fascinated by him I don't know why I feel like he's made of like steel or something Joseph Grantham at Mr. J Grantham says Brad what was your most recent uncomfortable moment There's so many. Like so, like, that's the thing about life. It's just like micro moments, like micro uh, discomforts. The accumulation of micro discomforts. My daughter yesterday, my five-year-old uh, daughter, was in the back of the car. We were driving. We were at a red light. We were stopped. Uh, she looked out at a billboard for X-Men, the apocalypse. I, I tweeted about this. Um, and she spelled apocalypse and said, you know, what does that spell? And then I had to tell her that it spelled apocalypse. And then she asked me what apocalypse meant. And I had to try to explain that a five-year-old. And then there's like a lot of little micro discomforts, like little social, uh, embarrassing social exchanges with regard to like other, other kids and their parents, you know, like uh, school friends of my daughter trying to navigate that. I, I don't know how much I can say. I'm worried that, you know, I mean, and it's not even anything terrible. It's just like little micro discomforts does this person like me? Am I talking too much? Do I, am I supposed to say something or you can't remember their name or you feel like they're annoyed? You don't know why. I don't know. That sort of stuff gets inside my head. Uh, Mira Gonzalez then asks, uh, Brad, if by the time that you're dying there is technology that can upload your consciousness to a computer so that you can quote unquote live forever, would you do it? I don't know i'd have to know more i don't know what that means like my i'm thinking on a computer i don't even know what that means i'm experiencing my consciousness how would that feel (laughs) what's in it for me other than eternal life but i don't understand what that means joseph grantham what's your least favorite thing about being in an airport I mean there's a lot of things I don't mind airports actually I like airports I like the travel experience I like being in a place Where there's a lot Like a lot of people in transit I like the The observational pleasures Of being in an airport And being around people And seeing them in that mode I would say that going through security Has uh, become Onerous I think going to the bathroom At the airport Especially if it's number two That's always miserable That rarely happens But it does something I think we all have had that experience It's tough difficult. It's painful. <laughs> and then I think the food, you know, the food at the airport, uh it's getting a little bit better depending on which airport you're in. But it's just garbage food. And why is it that every time I go to the airport, I'm starving? It's expensive garbage food everywhere I look, and yet I want it. But I think I've talked about this before. I don't think it's appropriate or in good taste to bring hot, smelly food onto an airplane smelly food of any kind on an airplane is a tremendous faux pas in my view and if you ever do it to me and you sit next to me on the airplane, uh, I'm going to uh, dislike you in an extreme way I rarely eat on an airplane, anything but if I do it has to be odorless and quiet because I love my uh, fellow man, I respect my fellow passengers. And then uh Joseph Grantham says, uh who is your creepiest Twitter follower? I don't know. I don't have too many. I mean there like there are sometimes I'll see like an avatar that freaks me out. You know, and I'm like, What's this person? What is this? You know, who is this? But I don't have too many uh trolls, which I think is a possibly a problem. Don't you need trolls? Aren't trolls a good sign? Lauren Sarand at Lux Lotus. Uh, Brad, what forgotten fiction writer's work would you like to see revived in an omnibus edition? Oh, shit. Maybe Aldous Huxley. I'm into the psychedelic writers. I mean, Terence McKenna's not a uh, fiction writer. But I think psychedelics and psychedelia is actually really interesting to me currently. I want to read more about it. I want to read more by uh, writers who take it seriously or took it seriously, especially those on the leading edge. Like some sort of like anthology of uh, psychedelic writers would be cool. Like carefully curated. Not all of it's created equal, obviously, but that's something that I, I feel interested in. Joseph Grantham, what is the douchiest thing you've seen in Los Angeles? I mean, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. That's the final question, by the way. That's the last question that got in, uh, in the, uh, allotted five minutes. What's the douchiest thing I've seen in Los Angeles? So here's one. I was, uh, I was at an event, like a parent, like a parent related event. And there was an agent there, like a, uh, film agent, like the quintessential agent, bro. Very successful one too. And, uh, he was talking like, I don't know him, but I happen to be like standing, uh, listening to him with a friend of mine. And uh, this agent was talking about his wife and how, you know, she had decided uh, not to work. He was going to be the sole breadwinner. He makes a lot of money, which he was telling us. And, uh... He was sort of joking. He was drinking. I think he'd had a couple of drinks. And he was talking about how his wife now... Uh, does lots of Pilates. Which he felt was her uh, moral obligation. Because he was the sole breadwinner. And he said to us... He said... Uh, he was relating a story of... Uh, or Was he? I don't forget what he was doing. But it was like basically he said... You either work... Or you work out. <laughs> I think I just did a really shitty job of telling that story. But do you, can you picture that? An agent pro... Telling his wife... You either work or you work out. I don't know. The odd thing was, it was kind of funny in the moment. Like I, I, I mean, if I'm being honest, I think I laughed a little just because it was like so over the top, Agent Pro, and his humor was uh, sinister, which I can sometimes appreciate, but it seems pretty douchey. He was extreme douchebag, extreme, like terrifying. He was the, like the cliche come to life. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Naomi Munawira. I had a great time talking with Naomi. She was over here uh, a little bit ago, and uh, we sat down, and we uh, had a conversation. I'm going to share that with you now. Naomi's new novel is called What Lies Between Us. It's available from St. Martin's Press. Here she is, folks. This is Naomi Munawira.
1: So I was born in 73 in Colombo, Sri Lanka, and when I was three years old, my family decided to move to Nigeria. Why? To make some money, basically.
0: Um, What's going on in Nigeria?
1: Well, yeah, I actually learned this really recently from Chris Abani, the Nigerian writer. We did a reading together a couple of weeks ago in L.A. And I didn't even realize this um, because when you're a kid, you don't think about these things. But he said that um, Nigeria was having this influx influx of Asians come in because they had just gone through Biafra. They had gone through their own civil war so they had this dearth of professionals people um, so a ton of South Asians were coming into all parts of Africa especially Nigeria in the 70s um, so we got there in 76 um, started off in Lagos and then sort of worked our way up north to a very rural town called Sokoto actually a rural village about 100 miles outside Sokoto called Kebbi, which Pretty much much no one except Nigerians have heard about.
0: Okay. And how old were you? Like, th- th- like, how many years were you there?
1: From three to 12, so nine years.
0: Okay. So you remember this?
1: Oh, yeah. Completely, right. yeah.
0: And what language were you speaking there?
1: Um, English, because it's a British colony, and Sri Lanka, of course, also was an ex-British colony.
0: Okay. So that, that was functional. Yes. You didn't have to show up and learn anything new.
1: Um, there were tribal languages, but I didn't go to local school. I went to an uh, international school.
0: Okay. Did you like it there?
1: yeah i mean it's your childhood right you don't think about anything else so yeah i loved it i mean there were camels and donkeys and um nature and yeah i loved it i had dogs i had a whole pack of dogs i had you had a pack yeah i did (laughs) i had my own dog and then there were village dogs that sort of hung around my dog so when we took walks there would be like five dogs going on the walk together so you know like what kid doesn't love that
0: that's awesome yeah they're pack animals
1: totally um, and I have to say, this African village dogs are the smartest dogs in the world. Really? Yep, they're the originator of every other dog
0: species. I thought the border collie was the smartest dog.
1: No, that's wrong. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but they are. They're. They're. I mean, they'd have to be clever just to survive.
1: Right. And also, like we were in a um, Muslim area, and dogs were not popular, so people you were in, a would what like, area? in a Muslim area. Okay. People would throw stones at dogs, and
0: wait, the Muslims don't like dogs.
1: In that area of Nigeria that I was in, in the 70s, I don't know if it's changed, but they didn't like dogs. They they were seen as unclean. Oh, God. Yep.
0: So they just throw rocks at dogs. Mm-hmm. That's awful.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: I'm glad you had a pack. They must have liked you.
1: Yeah, they did like me. I mean, what's heartbreaking is then in 84, we had to leave because it was a military coup. And I mean, the saddest thing for me is I had to leave, leave my dog at 12. Oh. So I know, I know. It's like the original heartbreak for me. Oh. I know. What?
0: Like, they just couldn't take it with you?
1: I mean, we were coming to America. We didn't know what was going to happen.
0: You can't just, like, put it in a kennel. No. It's all—it's right. it's sketchy to fly dogs anyway.
1: Exactly. And then bringing a dog from Africa, Nigeria. I mean, we didn't sort of even know where we were going to land. So it was not even an option. Yeah. yeah. What did you do with the dog? We left it.
0: Just left it out? Yeah. Because to...
1: everybody... Okay, so in 84, there was this military coup in Nigeria, and we had to leave very quickly along with all the other expatriates and all the other asians so i mean we packed up and left within i think like two months maybe a month it was Mm -hmm. a very quick sort of and this was um,
0: they were all the the like south asians or whatever would just expelled
1: yes we left before we were going to get expelled but it was coming it had happened in uganda and we knew it was coming
0: all right And, and uh like when you left sri lanka uh, was there any like unrest there that drove your family out, or was it simply- no,
1: no? Because that was seventy six, so things were relatively stable. I mean, compared to what, of course, was coming in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Um, but what was happening is there was this huge economic downturn, um, and my parents tell stories of standing in line for hours and hours just to get formula for my milk. So uh-huh. there were things like that. That was what it seems sort like of drove them out of well, Sri Lanka.
0: But it seems like those kinds of uh, economic downturns often um preface uh, military unrest i don't know how much they were directly tied you know the civil war there and that period i mean right. was there a link do you think
1: i'm not sure if that that was a link i mean it was an ethnic war so the civil war in sri lanka started in 83 and then it went on till 2009 which you know 26 years of um conflict and I'm not sure if that's the connection, but it was um, a war between the Sinhalese, which is a majority race, which is what I am, or ethnicity, and the, the Tamils, which are a minority as, um, and it's not all Tamils, of course, it was the Tamil Tigers of Li- Liberation Elam, which is a sort of, um, they started off as a freedom fighting force and turned into a terrorist organization.
0: I was going to say, because they were categorized or classified as a terrorist organization by After a lot
1: After
0: of- 9-11. Okay. Yeah. But, like there was a shift do you do you see like in the history of it, do you see you know did it was it there like there a turn to darkness, you know where their tactics or their mission got clouded and and uh, perverted
1: yeah, I do I mean, I can't pinpoint like a particular moment because I think it's a long process, but um in eighty three the sort of precipitating event for the war was there were these race riots against Tamils in Colombo, so about three thousand Tamil civilians were um in retaliation for 13 singular soldiers being killed Three thousand tamil people were dragged out of their houses um burnt in the streets their property was burned people were killed it was just carnage it was just the most awful carnage in 83 it's called black july um and that, so the Tigers had started before that, but um, they got a tremendous amount of support because of that, those events, uh, those like just absolutely brutal, grotesque events. Um, and then later it was found out that the government had given, had brought in thugs from the Singhala villages and given them voting records. So they knew which houses to go to. Mm. Yeah. So they went specifically to, like, Tamil houses and Tamil businesses and targeted these people. And, of course, that gave a tremendous amount of sympathy to the tigers who were in the north, organizing in the north. And then people, um, Tamil people, left Colombo. And then a ton of money started coming in from all over the world. So the diaspora really funded the tigers. And then the singular diaspora funded the government.
0: I was going to say, so, like, there's a Tamil diaspora that was sending money back, supporting... Yes. And those are the two major ethnic groups of yes. Sri Lanka? Yes. And then it also has this history as a British colony. Yes. So what was, the, I mean, there was a, a long period of time where the Sinhalese and the Tamils were getting along fine, well, <laughs> or, or getting along, like, at least without killing each other.
1: Yes. I mean, it's, uh, there's also small, tiny Muslim minorities. I want to mention that also. Um it's a very long history of conflict. Like if you go back and look into history, into historical terms there, the it's a kingdom before the British came. And it was going back and forth between the Tamil kings and the Sinhala kings. So the Sinhala kings would sometimes have Tamil queens. And then at certain points, Sri Lanka was actually even, it it was called Ceylon, And before that, Zeylan, Taprabane, the Arab trader names for it. Um, and there were even Tamil kings. So this is a contested island that went back and forth between the ethnicities in terms of governance.
0: That seems healthy.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, also with a tremendous amount of bloodshed, I'm sure. And, like, that seems battles. unhealthy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of ethnic conflict. Um, and then the British showed up and what they did, they did this really brilliant, of course, thing they did all over the world, which is divide and conquer. And what they did is they gave power to the Tamil minority, which is about 13%. And they educated them tremendously in English and put them in positions of power.
0: Hmm.
1: So when they left in 48, um, there was this, this moment where the Sinhalese were like, well, that's completely unfair that we're being ruled over by the Tamil people. We will take those jobs away, and then in '56 they passed the Singhala Only Act, which then meant that Tamil people couldn't get jobs. And See, British but the British—they inf- yep. planted the seeds. Right. Every time the wo- right. every
0: time the West gets involved where it shouldn't get involved and starts acting imperially, Let's shit just goes blame bad. Them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly, British people. <laughs> and they, I mean, it's funny—they came for spices, and you know. They came and looted, basically, and pillaged. Yeah, like, India's mean, trying to get their big diamond back now, which I think is interesting.
0: They had a big diamond?
1: Oh, yeah, the Co-de-Nor, the oh. Noor. It's like a giant diamond that was taken from India because India... Like, oh, one of the crown jewels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's now yeah, in, the cra- in one of the crowns. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> give it back.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, like, give it back. Exactly. I think Tony Blair, one of those guys, I think it was Tony Blair who said, well, if we give it back, pretty soon the British Museum will be empty it's like well yeah
0: yeah yeah you looted all of our antiquities or whatever yeah. and you know right plus like jewels in general just jewels like what the- they're precious stones i have right. a hard time wrapping my brain around it
1: they're just pieces of rock really. from the earth like from the earth
0: let's not get possessive yeah. but i mean you took it from here it's you know it's the rightful owner right return it
1: yeah that's what i think
0: uh okay so <laughs> yeah. you were born in colombo yes but you don't have very many memories
1: no, no, we go, we go back every year. We I, every year growing up, we would go back, even through all throughout, all throughout, okay. even during the war.
0: So you could show up during the the war years and as a family and feel relatively okay. Relatively,
1: relatively. I'm um, we're not. I'm single, so yeah. that protects me tremendously. Um, in eighty four, so in eighty four, we're in Nigeria. There's this military coup, and we're trying to figure out where to go because we cannot go back to Sri Lanka because the war has started there. Um, and I had an uncle in Minnesota and he sponsored us, but very luckily we didn't end up in Minnesota. That's where my (laughs) wife is from.
0: (laughs) Um, it's chilly.
1: It's yeah, that's an understatement. I've been there. I spent one, some one winter there and I was like, no. Um, but we ended up in Southern California. Actually, we came to LA. Okay. And I've been here since 84. And then I, now I live in the Bay area, but, um, yeah, so that's that's sort of the trajectory of my life.
0: So you get here at age twelve. Yes, you're missing your dog. <laughs> yes, you're in a, you're in the United States after living in Nigeria, after living in Sri Lanka. Yes. So this is a cultural shift. A little bit. Yeah, t- but I mean, and age twelve not the simplest time in a kid's life. You know, it's not like you were like four, Right. and you just sort of accept whatever comes your way with like a you know a, a lighter step. But when you're twelve, you can you can be messed with like did it was it hard
1: yeah i mean i think i was really dislocated this process of migration or immigration it just completely undoes you and you have to remake yourself in a completely different way so um yeah i think i came to la and then i didn't really know where i was i didn't really understand a lot i thought of it as los angeles i remember very early on being at a party and someone's like so you're from L.A. And I didn't know. I literally didn't know what L.A. meant because in my head it was Los Angeles. So right. I was like, what's that? You know, And then. Yeah, that wasn't popular. <laughs> that was, you just added yourself as not being. From yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so it took it took quite a few years before I sort of figured out how this worked. But it was also incredibly liberating. It's like, oh, my gosh. OK, um, there was music. In fact, you know, since this is sort of topical, it was the 84 was the year that Purple Rain came out. Mm so i'm landing here from africa and that's happening so just amazing like all these new things i mean in africa we had um it it was mixed gender school but we wore uniforms you know we we had the british system and here it's just like you wear anything you want now you like tease your hair and wear tons of hairspray and eyeliner and it was it's sort of liberating too oh yeah yeah
0: those were good years
1: Oh my God! I love the '80s. Yeah, so much. I do too. I, mean, <laughs> I guess maybe
0: everybody's nostalgic for the years of their childhood like that. But the music—I love the music of the so '80s. good. I still listen to so it. So good. Yep. I go back to it. I was—I yep. was very broken up uh, about Prince in a way that um, maybe exceeds all others. we've lost David yeah. Bowie. I was an Eagles fan I'm from the Midwest. So I like—I was even upset about Glenn Frey. Though, mm. uh, I don't want to. I don't know. I don't want to diminish him. I just feel like he's not as cool as David Bowie and Prince to no, people. No, they're
1: the best. But, man. They're the best. We've
0: lost a lot of big lights.
1: Really big lights. I mean, Freddie Mercury, I mean, I I was young, so I don't, didn't know him or didn't sort of connect in that way, and I don't remember when he died. So that was, wasn't a big deal. But I think that would have been a big deal for me um, because he was Parsi, too, right? I don't think a lot of people know this. He was Parsi... Zarastrian and he from I believe Pakistan or India and then he grew up in Zanzibar and then he's in London and he becomes Freddie Mercury which well, is
0: amazing. See I have like, po- like, posthumously for him yeah. uh, I have become a huge fan of Queen. Right. Like I just you know I can't keep up with everything. I'm horrible at keeping up with culture generally so right. I'm, I'm always late to the party but like over the past few years I've just been listening to Queen and thinking to myself like I mean the voice on this guy Oh my god. And then all that he was carrying, you know, and, and dealing with uh, the courage involved in, you know, his, uh, you know, his art and his career. It's just awesome. Right. And nobody, I mean, and then also just like the, the backing band, the music yes. itself is incredible.
1: Incredible. Amazing. Yeah. Um, And to come from a South Asian background and then come out as Freddie Mercury, I mean, that is, that's, I, it's just mind blowing in the 70s. You know, and cross-dress and on stage and do all of those things. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, and I
0: was thinking about Prince, too. Like, how much he was able to get away with. Let's just do the whole show about Prince. Yeah, I guess so.
1: (laughs) Who cares about writing, books, whatever?
0: But, I mean, just, like, he he got away with everything. Uh, Like, did anyone ever give... Like, did anyone ever push back on Prince? It was almost like he was above it all.
1: He was so above it all. I mean, it's unbelievable when you watch the videos. I saw, um, gosh, this is on Facebook. So this is, I'm going to tell this story terribly. But somebody said that People Magazine or one of those magazines did this profile, where will Prince be in 40 years? And they assumed that he would be this fat lounge singer in Vegas. And it's so not the case. In fact, that's so far from what actually happened, which is like, you know, I saw him in concert um, three years ago, and he was just this sort of prancing, strutting, rock sex god is the only way I could think about it. Yeah. He was incredible. I
0: was watching the uh, first time he ever appeared on Saturday Night Live, and I don't remember yeah. what song he performed. It wasn't yeah, yeah, my yeah. favorite song of his, but uh, he was 22. Mm-hmm. And the amount of like <laughs> coiled energy in his body, like I don't even know how else to describe it, but like the way he moved, you know, like yep. it was like, you know, people keep saying like he was just like music just like poured out of him. Yep. And I don't like to get too precious about it, but that really is what it seems like, you yeah. know. The guy, um, you know, had something else.
1: His perfect um, creative channel. Yes. Just channeling in this way that's like unbelievable. And since we're talking about him, I have to tell this story because now we're talking about prints and not books because who cares about books? But (laughs) um, for my 40th birthday, my husband took me on this secret trip. And so I didn't know where I was going. And we get to the airport and he prints out the tickets and it says Las Vegas. And I'm like, oh, God, I hate Vegas. I don't want to go there. But I'm like, okay, this is really sweet. Um, And we go to Vegas and we meet two of my friends and we're there and we're at the hotel pool and this waiter comes up and he's got... A card and it just says you don't have to be rich and i'm like oh my god we're gonna go see prince tonight which is mind-blowing enough and then my friend that lived in vegas she is a lawyer and she does she was doing the contracts for the tour so we got to be not in the front row we got to be in the pit okay which is like at his feet oh my god yeah oh my god <laughs>
0: <laughs> you could touch his high heels
1: pretty much they were yeah he was really really close and you know like He's doing his thing, and we're just like, oh, my God, he's amazing. And then at the very end, the long song, he's like, where are my dancers at? And we're like, oh, he's not talking about backup dancers. He's talking about people in the pit. So my friend and I ran on stage, and we danced with Prince. Oh,
0: my God. Yeah.
1: And, I mean, highlight, one of my highlights of my life. And at the very... And as we were walking off, my friend blew him a kiss and he caught it and slapped it on his cheek. Oh. And so <laughs> that's my Prince story, which is pretty amazing. I'm
0: very glad we talked about that. Right? And that's maybe one of the better Prince stories I've ever heard.
1: I, I mean, I, it's like a memory that I will treasure forever. That's awesome. Especially now.
0: Yeah. He's just, I think the thing too is that uh, just as an artist, yes. he was so gifted, like so uniquely gifted at what he did.
1: And he didn't care. You know, like we were talking about TV performances. Did you see the early one with Dick Clark? No. He's 19. Oh, my God. And Dick Clark is like, how many instruments do you play? And he's like, he sort of thinks about it and he says, a thousand. Just like, (laughs) why are you asking me these stupid questions, you know? And um, Dick Clark is like, well, people have been trying to sign you since you were 15. And he's like, yeah, I guess, but I don't want to do that. It was just such perfect confidence and such sureness that he was going to do something yeah. incredible. And I feel like very few artists have that.
0: Well, I mean, I guess the proof is sort of in the pudding. You can either play or you can't. You can either sing or you can't. You can either dance or you can't. You <laughs> or know? you can do all of them. Or you can do all of them. He knew he could do it. <laughs> right. You know, and then, but then it's also you talked about him being like such a perfect creative channel. So just to sort of try to weave this back towards writing because mm-hmm. it's applicable to any art. Um, you know, I, I, think about musicians, um, and I guess to a lesser extent writers, because I feel like writers often have really good books come out of them in their fifties, their sixties, mm-hmm. their seventies, even their eighties and nineties, you know, it, it has happened. Um, but when you think about musicians, there's usually a really concentrated period of productivity where they are channeling and making really vital music. And then they just sort of, you know, the, the bigger acts sort of coast on that. You know, or they might put out new albums, but they never really scale those same heights again. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, like, how did he keep the channel open? You know, he seemed to be like super productive his entire life. And I don't know. He was just sort of like a uh, Teflon. Everybody liked him. Right. Like critics, the popular opinion, like everyone knew he was great.
1: It was just perfect recognition of what he was. Which is, he was embodying the art in a way that I think very few people can do. He's just, I don't I don't think he could have turned it off. I think it was just coming. Yeah. And he was such a channel that it was just coming all the time. I don't think it could have stopped. I don't think he could have stopped it.
0: Are there writers like that? Oh, gosh. Who's the prince of literature? That is <laughs> such a
1: good question. You know, I have to say, Salman Rushdie at a certain point, was that for me? When yeah. he was writing the Sartanic Verses and the Murs Lansai, um, the Ground Beneath Her Feet. um all of those books and then there are some books that i don't like quite as much so who's the prince of literature um that's a great question what do you think
0: (sighs) i mean i don't know
1: somebody that everyone loves throughout their entire career that's a hard one yeah um trust Carol oates yeah. she's so prolific she's oh. super
0: prolific. she right. can't turn it off. I mean like, she cannot turn it I, off I get like a galley. I get two galleys of hers a year. It seems like you know yeah, but I don't know. I mean when I think about somebody who's able to main, you know maintain a super high level mm-hmm. of quality and to keep producing and to have the kind of like critical affection and popular affection
1: love. Because people talk about books in terms of love, which I really like. You know, it's it's not a word that gets used. And hate. Yeah, and hate. It's right. deeper. It's That's true. It's deep.
0: You have to work because the thing is, like, it's easy to listen to a song or even an album, right? Comparatively, but right, you got to work to read a book. Yes. So if somebody writes a book that. <laughs> That you that you really enjoy, you're going to love it. You're going to speak of it in like these right. really you know uh, lofty terms, and, and it
1: sort of it touches you in a way that nothing else does.
0: But conversely, if you spend eight hours or twelve hours reading a book and it doesn't do it for you, then it's going to you know. Especially, I don't know. I feel like if you're not liking it, you should just put it down. Uh, that's what I do. But I guess some people are just uh, masochists, and they.
1: I don't feel like that many people do that. I feel like feel like most people put it down. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is that what you do? Yes. How, like, how easy is it for you to find a book that you like to read?
1: Oh gosh, it's. I have to say, it's pretty hard. Okay, it that makes really... me feel good
0: because I'm the same way.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty exacting, and if it's not happening in the first like 20 pages, I'm not going to. Because there's, I can return to the books I really love, and that you know that that will satisfy. You know they're going to be good. <laughs> I know they're going to be good, and that I mean it makes me sad because. People write so much, and I I want it to be really good. I want to. I want more than anything else to read something that's really, really good.
0: Yeah, but there's the thing about something being really, really good. I mean, it's, it gets tricky to even talk about art in those terms. But right. it's just it's a book that registers with you totally. at a particular time in your life, and there's more that goes into that equation than simply like the quality of craftsmanship of the book itself. It's about like what's going on with Naomi. Like, right. what book do you need? You know, I think that. The books that I've really had the most intense experiences with are the books that came to me at the time in my life when I needed them, and they spoke to something. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah, like,
1: sure. But there are some that are just undeniably good no matter what, right?
0: Yeah. Something
1: like The God of Small Things, uh-huh. th- which is what I'm th- thinking about, and A Little Life, and I'm going to mess up her name, so I'll let you say her name. Hanya Yanagihara. That's right. Um, that book, I feel like it's such a tough read and so painful, and it's just sort of heartbreaking and devastating and incredible. And I think that book could have arrived at any time in my life and I would have recognized it as a perfect work of uh, writing
0: and genius really. Yeah, I read The God of Small Things when I think it came out in 1997. I could be wrong.
1: I'm not sure. But I was just
0: out of college. It's like one of these there are certain books where I'm like, why did I wind up with that book in my hands? Mm. I don't even remember how. But Mm. somehow like, I picked it up and I was like, I got to read this. Mm. And I remember I got it at the Boulder Bookstore. Just a weird like pluck off the shelf thing. I did the same thing with uh, "Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius." Like,
1: oh, Dave Eggers, but
0: before it became anything, right? It was just on the shelf, and I was like, somehow, like I got to read this. You well know? you
1: recognize it, right?
0: I, I mean, I guess so. The yeah. cover, and I guess like it was, there was a big David Foster Wallace uh, blurb on the back. I think that might have helped. <laughs> but it was like it was like an excerpt from an email he had sent to Eggers. It wasn't your traditional blurb, but it nice. was which was effective. Yes. So anyway, but yeah. I remember reading. And uh, I think Arundhati Roy is a really fascinating writer. She is. Like her political writing and um, the stances she's taken, like, you know, broadly, like globally, but also like within her own culture, like she's ballsy. She's so ballsy. She's not joking around.
1: No, she's not. I mean, the sad thing is I was in India for the Jaipur Literary Festival and I asked uh, some Indians. Um, and this is just random people, so it's not—it's not—it doesn't have to be indicative. But I said, "Well, what do you think of Arundhati Roy?" Or I think they said, "What do you love to read?" And I was like, "I love Arundhati Roy." And they said, "Well, oh, the Harlot with the Booker." Oh, sorry, not the Harlot. The what? Gosh, it's like an awful term. The Hooker with the Booker. Oh. That's what she's called within certain circles. God. So. At the literary festival? This is not at the literary festival. This is before. I think at the literary festival, she would have been quite lauded.
0: Okay. I was going to (laughs) say, ladies and gentlemen, here she is, the hooker with the booker. booker. There you go.
1: (laughs) Um, But, you know, that speaks to a certain kind of sexism. Yeah, I was going
0: to say. Well, but she's also had, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Where she's been... uh, Oh, the trial. Charged. Yeah. She's been charged with... uh, Um,
1: Gosh, it's a terrible, stupid old term. Mm.
0: Like writing something you're not supposed to write, essentially.
1: Right. What is the word for that? Like Two that. writers. It'll come, yeah. <laughs>
0: It'll come to us later. But, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it, She's a, she's an interesting case, too, because she wrote this novel which at a young age, yep. which came out and um, had the ride that everyone wishes their books would have. I mean, it was Man Booker. It was international bestseller. Made her a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she hasn't really returned. Has she returned to fiction much? I think a lot. Then she kind of turned to political writing and, you know, we talk about being like a perfect vessel and we talk about, you know, having a long career. I think all these things that people who get into the arts think about. Uh, but I think it's totally normal for a writer or any kind of artist to have like just a few periods, one, two, three periods of life where that creative channel is open and things are really happening not that you can't do other work but you know what i'm saying like
1: yeah i mean she said that that book came to her in a giant rush and there's a rumor that she, I think she's confirmed that she's actually working on a second book right now, but she doesn't talk about it very much. Okay. But her political work has been really important to her.
0: Of course. Yeah. yeah.
1: So that's what she's been focusing on. And
0: I mean, and yeah, not to diminish it, I guess right. I'm just speaking from the perspective of uh, fiction.
1: Right. I mean, what I think about is interesting about aging and writing is like, we're not like basketball players or figure skaters or something. So our- I actually
0: consider myself the figure <laughs> skater. I'm sure you look great Of American graphic. literature. Perfect.
1: <laughs> Um, but I think that, you know, we can hit our stride later in life, which I, is very... Um, I'm counting on it. Right? It's nice. I mean, my first book was published when I was 40. So, but I, I think that's, I mean, you know, there was all those years of struggle before that and all the sort of depression and um, self-loathing and everything that came before that. But But then you sort of understand that it's something that will take a long time. And that's
0: okay. Neil, and you got to have some, you got to have some life experiences. Yeah. You got to, I mean, I think that there can be a danger in publishing too young sometimes. Other times people write beautiful books in their twenties. I mean, it can be done. So there's no hard, fast rule, but, um, you know, I think that, I think the sweet spot for writers, this is what I'm telling myself is between 40 and 80. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly.
1: Sometime between those 40 years. Yeah, let's hope.
0: Uh, so how did you get into it? Like you get to the United States... You are assimilating into, um, you know, American culture in L.A. Right. And uh, did you have a, a good time of it as an adolescent? Did you I mean, did it take you a long time? <laughs> did you feel um, like a, an outcast, or did people treat you poorly? Or yeah,
1: a, all of that. All of which it. is great for becoming a writer. I was going to say. totally what you need. It's good training. Yeah, you need to feel like an outsider in several different places, and yeah, totally um but you know the saving grace was books like i just wanted to read i was gonna spend the rest of my life reading which is really what led to what i'm doing now
0: so what was it early that got you like what books were you picking up as a teenager oh
1: gosh as a teenager i mean nancy drew um not that that was helping but um there's a book that i really love that i discovered in nigeria called my family and other animals which i think very few americans know it's a british writer um, but then in high school, I was discovering Writers of Color, which is a completely sort of new world. I had no idea that that um, even existed. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, to- Tony Morrison, Alice Walker. And that was a huge, um, gosh, these moments of like, holy shit, okay, it's not just um, the white writers. And then I remember in high school picking up a book by Shyam Salvador. Um, And he had written about Sri Lankans. And that was the first moment I was like, I didn't even think this was possible. And in the back of my mind, I had thought that, okay, if I, because I love to read so much. And I think I had this sort of unconscious, like, if I want to write, I'm going to have to write about Indian people. Because nobody in America, nobody around me knows what Sri Lanka is. Um, So I'll just, uh, I'll write about Indian, I'll write about Sri Lankans, but I'll call them Indians. And it'll be fine. Like, people won't know, which is A ridiculous plan. But then I read Shyam, and I'm like, oh, this is actually possible that I can write exactly what I want. And then, of course, I didn't. That was in high school, and I didn't write for the next 20 years or something. Maybe not that long, but a long, long. I mean, it took a long time. It did. Yeah, yeah. So I decided I would spend my life reading. So I convinced my parents that it was okay if I majored in English as an undergraduate because I would go to law school. Which is a great plan, right? Yeah. Um, so they let me study English lit at UC Irvine. And then I got to the end of that. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to law school. That's not happening. So how do I keep reading? I was like, well, I'll get a PhD in English Lit. And then I can just keep reading. Um, so I did that. And I sort of did pretty well in school. Went through all coursework. Did really well on my oral exams. Sort of coasted through it. And then I got to the dissertation. And it was... Um, just the most hellish experience. I was trying to write this big academic paper um, about what Krishna Murthy.
0: Oh, yeah, interesting. He's <laughs> an interesting. Uh, am I am I thinking of the right guy? Is he the guy that lived up in Ojai? Yes. Okay. Later in life, I uh, I read a book that in not explicitly about him or like you know just about him alone, but involving him mm-hmm. and his origin story it is amazing. Is incredible. It's incredible. He should have been a monster.
1: But he wasn't. But he wasn't. He was amazing. Yeah, it's like it's just so people
0: <laughs> listening, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm mangling this. But yeah. like, he as a boy mm-hmm. was like picked out of a crowd by On the beach. Yeah, by some like mystical guru who was like, "This guy's got special spiritual powers." And then they sort of picked him up off the beach and started yep. training him. Yep. And he became like this.
1: Yeah, so it was a Theosophical Society of Britain, and they were all over South Asia, and I, probably the rest of Asia, too. I'm not sure. But they found Krishnamurti when he was, I think, seven or eight in South India on a beach, and they were like, this guy is going to be the world messiah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really why sure why. does this why. never happen to me? Right? It's bullshit. You you totally. You were in the wrong place. You yeah. should have been on a beach in South <laughs> India. Um, like, and- they,
0: they see me on the beach. They're like, that guy needs some sunscreen. That <laughs> <laughs> guy needs SPF 70.
1: That guy is not the world messiah. <laughs> <laughs> and they take him and they like completely remake, they take him from his family. Yeah. And then they sort of bring him up. Like a Dalai Lama. S- yeah. And But weird, but weirder. They send him to England and they're trying to get him into Oxford. And he doesn't get in. And it's really messy and awful. I mean, the piece that really, um, I think, speaks to this is like, he had these, you know, his ears were ripped because they were Brahmin and they had the heavy earrings. Um, So they stitch them up because, you know, if you're British masculinity, you don't wear earrings. And I think that's like that moment says a lot about like remaking him in the form that they wanted. Um, But then he is he goes to England. He gets educated. They're bringing him back and he's supposed to come to India and be the world messiah and lead this entire organization, this giant theosophical society. And he comes here and he gets off the boat and he says, I'm not the messiah. And this is all bullshit. And he does this giant speech about it. Yeah. So that's, yeah.
0: Hang on one second. I got to go see if this guy can stop the leaf blowing. Hang on. Okay. All right. So we're back okay. uh, after that brief interruption. We were talking about Krishnamurti. So you were writing your dissertation about Krishnamurti. Yeah. What brought this on?
1: A friend pointed me at him, and I read all about him, and I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. This man had so much power and influence. And he gave it all up, which is, I think, what you should do if you're supposed to be the world leader of some weird religion.
0: Yeah, that's the thing about him is that he you know, he could have easily been a very bad person and exactly. it could have abused that power. And like, it's like, it's like a, a greatly ironic situation to have all this bestowed upon him. And uh, he actually turned out to be truly wise. Exactly, yeah. which I
1: thought was incredible. And I just felt like not enough people knew about him. So I was going to write a dissertation about him. But then it fell apart, which is kind of great, which is probably what should happen if you're trying to write about Krishnamurti.
0: Why why did it uh, fall apart?
1: Oh, because I couldn't write the academic. And what started happening is um, parts of my book started showing up. Um, And at some point, I realized that I was writing fiction. Mm. And that was like...
0: That's not usually what they're (laughs) looking for.
1: (laughs) No. In fact, I went to my professor and I said, I think I'm writing a novel about the Sri Lankan Civil War. And she said, no. That's not going to go. <laughs> so you know I did uh, I did the logical thing which is I dropped out of school. <laughs> I did. <laughs> right
0: at the finish line?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And you and you said what? I'm going to write this novel.
1: Yeah. So I was at UC Irvine, UC Riverside at this point. Riverside which is, you know, um, not the nicest place, which probably was part of the. I need to get the hell out of here. I've been here too long. It's very
0: hot in Riverside. It's hot
1: and horrible and deserty and all of that. Um, and I, so I dropped out. My parents are really upset. My dad said it was the worst thing that had happened to him for about ten years. He said that. Um, and I moved. That's him. a nice one to lay on your kid. It's <laughs> you the know, worst gosh, thing that ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> you know, not the civil wars and not like <laughs> on, the dad. political coups mm-hmm. and you know. Definitely the dropping out of the PhD. Um, and I moved to Berkeley and I got myself a teaching job and I started writing. So I, I've i never taken a writing class. I was really trying to figure it out. Um, not even sure what I was writing for a long time and sort of teaching myself. But I had had this background of really studying books very closely.
0: Well, you you were a huge reader. Exactly. That's the deal. Which
1: is the deal. And then actually, I think the PhD was really good because we were pulling apart books and looking at how they worked. But without the idea of writing fiction. So it was different. And th- I mean, that was 2001 and my novel didn't get published till 2012. So it was a long slog.
0: How long did it take you to write it?
1: Um, so I started in 2001 and I thought I finished in 2007 and I sent it to my agent at the time. And he's like, this is not finished. And I was like, fuck you. I hate you because <laughs> I've been working on this forever. Yeah. And he's like, well, the end is too abrupt. And then I realized that because I was writing about the war, I was writing about two women going through the war, um, and the war in Sri Lanka was still going on. So I didn't, I didn't have any idea of how to end it, and I didn't know where my characters would go after that point. Um, so I sort of had to put the book away and work on some other stuff. And then in 2009, the war actually ended, and I finished. Convenient, uh, you know. <laughs> whew, thank God, so I could finish my novel. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And
0: this was Island of a Thousand Mirrors. mirrors.
1: Yeah. So then I could finish the last part. And um, I mean, that was such a bittersweet moment because the war had ended after 26 years. And, you know, the final battle had a death toll of about 40,000. It was just a bittersweet moment. I remember just being sort of this sort of crisis of like, okay. It's over, and then we paid such a heavy, heavy price. The de- final death toll was 80 to 100,000 people. Um, yeah, heavy. Um, and, so, and then my, I had another agent at that point. No, it was actually, sorry, same guy. He sent it out to all the American houses, and nobody wanted it.
0: What did you do then?
1: I, you know, I cried a little bit, depressed for a little while. And then I started writing another novel, which is because, you know, as a writer, you know, everybody knows this. It's all about rejection. This is what's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to have a first novel published. It's supposed to be in the drawer. So I started a different novel. Second novel is actually in the drawer. It's not the book that is now my second novel. Um, Which is What Lies. What Lies Between, us, between is,
0: us is the second novel it's but it's the third the novel third, right what happened to the second novel <laughs> the
1: second one is on my computer I'm gonna look at it in a while oh you are yes you I'm work... working on a third that's not this, that one that's actually the
0: fourth yes <laughs> <laughs> everyone's got one of those everyone's got one yeah yeah at
1: least exactly is, you
0: think it's salvageable
1: uh possibly I have to, possibly, I think the writing might be okay, but I have to look. It's been yours okay, yeah, well you'll
0: you know you'll have you'll have the ability to look at it with fresh eyes.
1: Yes, exactly. Oh.
0: so okay, so what happened with Island of a Thousand mirrors Then. Um
1: so then, so I put it away, I don't look at it, and then in two thousand and twelve, I reconnect with a friend, a Sri Lankan friend who I grew up with in Nigeria. And she's like, what are you doing now? And we haven't talked for like 25 years. And I say, well, I'm trying to get this book published. And no one in America wants it. Um, All the major houses have rejected it. And she says, well, my really good friends run a publishing house in Sri Lanka. Why don't you try them? And I send it to them. And it's a tiny house. It's a husband and wife team. And they run it out of their garage, much like this. Yeah, Um, Empires are built from rooms like this. Exactly. And they put out a thousand copies. And so, very small, no money, changed hands um and then from there, India bought in, and then when it got bought in India, it went up for all, it's like some really major prizes, um including the d s c which is this giant Indian prize of um the loot is fifty thousand dollars oh, yeah, that's considerable I know um, I didn't win bastards <laughs> I know right, um, but if I had won, I would have been the first woman to win that prize. But Jemima you won it the next year. Okay, good for her. Redemption. Yes, um, and so then and then America called me and America, the, America, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the whole is, continent. I called. was going to say, there's an actual
0: America <laughs> on your collar ID. And they just,
1: oh, it's like, wow, <laughs> I was actually in Sri Lanka, in my childhood home, and I hadn't actually, I didn't go back to Sri Lanka for like nine years while I was writing the book. I had gone all the way before that, but there was this sort of period that I didn't go, but I went back after nine years and the book, I was taking calls from American editors while I was there, which just felt good and strange and everything.
0: There was an auction for your book?
1: Yeah, small bidding. After everyone
0: had rejected it? Yeah. See, like that's (laughs) It had to feel so good though, in a way, but also kind of like, were you bitter? Were you like, come no,
1: on? No, not bitter, but very surreal. Yeah. Very surreal. And, but it just felt like such an incredible moment because again, I was in my childhood house and that house, I have to tell you through the years of the war for about 15 years, we had no access to it because a Tamil family had moved in, um, and they weren't paying rent and, uh, uh Sri Lanka doesn't give you any rights if you've immigrated because they're like okay you left fuck you right like these other people have stayed so we weren't getting rent and we thought that the tamil family would just stay in our ancestral house forever and then the war ended and they packed up and left because they had lost their land in the north so they had come and taken our land which makes sense but then they they went home and so we got our house back and all these things happened very very quickly so then i'm in my ancestral house that i haven't seen in about fifteen years and I'm fielding calls from American editors. So wow. all of that. Yeah.
0: And the book the book gets published.
1: And the book gets published. Win
0: some awards.
1: Um it was up for the Northern California book prize, but uh-huh. it didn't win. Okay. But it's doing really well. I mean it was this kind of also blows my mind. It was a Target book club selection for January. I mean, who knew Target <laughs> had a book club? And yeah.
0: Well I mean R- weird. It just takes like it's like what I always tell people who are going out with their their first novel, especially. It's like it just takes one. Yes. And it's hard. Time. Like when you look back on it and you think about the the first round of submissions where nobody accepted it. Yeah. Do you have any idea why? Like, can you can you um, like somehow? Um, tease out that psychology is there something about the book that you felt might have scared them off or is it that right. they just didn't understand it culturally or what
1: i my guy my agent at the time he wasn't giving me a lot of information so but what i can i'm guessing that they didn't think that it would go well with american audiences because it's such a faraway country and it's not something people know about but i that seems to be the power of it now people seem really interested in that i also got um the the Feedback that my writing is quite British because I grew up on British writers. I'm not sure quite what that means. But wrong Yeah, with that. right. Like I.
0: Who wants to listen to some? An Amer- <laughs> like, if I have the choice between listening to a British person talk and an American person talk, I'll take British every time.
1: Me too. They, yeah. There
0: is something, there is something inherently like distinguished about somebody speaking. Uh, with, I guess, I don't know. they are different are different uh, dialects. I mean, besides
1: all what we talked about before, which is them screwing up the rest of the world, they sound really good. <laughs> yeah, they so. sounded great <laughs>
0: while they were destroying exactly. all of their territories.
1: That's fine.
0: Um, well, that's cool. That's a cool story. It's, yeah, it's a that's, long
1: story. I mean, this is a thing I tell writing students. It just takes time and just like this crazy kind of perseverance that it's almost lunatic. Like no one should hang on this long. It's an
0: irrational pursuit. Totally. Like there's nothing. But no yeah, payback. If, if you or, look at it and you and you really know the, the scoop. Yes. Like no sane person no would sane do this. Person <laughs> is,
1: this is not sane. This is not a sane thing to do. And yet. And yet I think some of us don't have a choice.
0: That's how you feel. Yeah. I mean, if you're writing your dissertation and suddenly it's fiction.
1: Yeah. What are you going to do, right? What are you going to do? I drop out.
0: You dropped out. Yeah. At least you have the courage of your uh, convictions. Yeah.
1: But you don't know. That's the thing. You drop out. And I mean, my dad was like, well, you're just going to be poverty stricken for the rest of your, your life. I'm like, yeah, maybe that might be true. But I can't. I just couldn't do the other thing so I'm like okay I have to give this as much as I can and I also like in terms of like advice or whatever in terms of crazy perseverance it's the people that hung on and kept doing it that stuff starts happening for them like I've been on this ride for a long time with colleagues sort of peers and you know a lot of people did drop out and go off drop out quote unquote and go off to law school and now they're making tons of money and are probably happier than us <laughs> <laughs>
0: they're not in a garage that's they're not for sure. in a
1: garage they own houses and cars and it's nice um but the other people that hung on i mean some little things such changing you get an agent you like win a contest something happens at some point and if you hang on i feel long enough i feel like and and you work really really hard and in, get deep and internal and psychological and do your work. I feel like something will shift. I'm sort of optimistic. Is that optimistic? Like is no, that kind I, of I think that's what crazy, you have right? to believe. Yeah. I
0: think that's what you have to believe, and I think that there's evidence for it working. I don't think it always works. No. Um. I think there's a little bit of luck yes. in life that oh has you know, things have to break your way. Yes. But it's not gonna. Ha- you're not gonna get lucky if you don't do. If you don't have books written. Right. You know, and if right. you're not giving it like a super high level of effort yes, and you're not uh, passionate or like super interested in what you're working on. Right. You know, so all of that has to be there and then you have to get a couple of breaks. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's probably not going to happen on your time schedule unless you're extremely fortunate.
1: No. And that hard work, I think I heard you say this, you were quoting something about it. The hard writing is easy reading. And I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm banking on it. Because my book Good. is a pain in the ass to write. Well, then you're on the it's right gonna track. It's going to be a masterpiece. <laughs> it's going to be genius.
1: Don't even worry, Brad.
0: Oh, man. So you've written um, What Lies Between Us. Yes. As your third novel. Right. That one... Bec- Published as my second novel. Published as your second novel. The composition of which w- happened more quickly?
1: Much more quickly. Um, I think I started seriously writing about three years ago. Um, And it came out in February 2016, maybe four years ago. Um, It's a really, really different book. It's it's a confession of a woman who's committed a really terrible crime. So she's in jail and she's telling you what she's done and she's taking you on the journey of her life. And it's a book about um, the consequences of childhood trauma upon our adult lives Mm. and also the dark side of maternity. Whoa. I know.
0: Where did all this come from?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I literally, where did it come from? I was looking back through journals, and I found the f- very first note I ever made about it in 2010 in a journal. And it said, write about a woman who's done this. And I can't tell you what that is, because it'll be a spoiler. Um, and it said, dot, 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 make it up. Make everything up. And I started doing How the How old research- were you when you did this? That was 2010. So what is... In your Um, journal, yeah.
0: Oh, okay. So this wasn't when you were like twelve years old. No, 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 no. This is (laughs) amazing. (laughs) Oh my god, Uh, that journal is like, I like that boy. (laughs) He's cute.
1: Um, No, no. So this is 2010, and that I found that's the first idea for the second book. And um, then I started doing some research. I'm like, oh, I don't have to make this up. Like, women, this particular thing that she's done happens all the time. It's much more common than we think. And this is weird to like not talk about what she's done.
0: That's gonna make people interested.
1: Okay, good. And
0: then the dark side of maternity. Yeah. What about that?
1: What about it? Um I think it's something I'll tell you this. So the way I started talking about the book is at some point I people would as I was writing, people would say, What are you talking writing about? And I don't usually talk about what I write about. I keep it very, very close. Don't talk about it. Don't show it to anyone till I'm sure it's as good as I can get it. But at a certain point, I started answering that question with, well, it's about a woman who's committed the worst crime a woman can commit. And 97% of the time, people told me, I, I would say, what do you think that is? And they would tell me exactly what I had written about. Hmm.
0: Now it's even more cryptic. Oh, yeah, good! But it's but it's like I'm starting to wrap my head around. I don't want to play a guessing game because right, then we'll right. just get into spoilers. But right. um, you know, it's a like we just like thinking about maternity and like the way we're supposed to. I think we're sort of uh, enculturated to think about it, especially women. You know, it's this magical experience. It's this, you know, uh, mystical. It's even mystical. You know, there's all this kind kind of uh, there's all these feelings and. Emotional experiences ascribed to it, and if I mean, I, I know just from my own experience watching my wife go through it. Like, if you have a hard time postpartum yeah. or anything, yeah. like you can feel like really deficient. It's can, so
1: hard in this country. I mean, I think that's what fueled me writing this book. Is
0: do you have children? Um, I don't. Okay. and that's
1: a choice my husband and I have made. So that's actually part also something we can talk about. But I, what I part of this book is like, I just realized how hard it is in women in this country because. The only thing I could compare it to is in Sri Lanka, when a woman gets pregnant traditionally, and of course this is changing because we're getting more Western, but traditionally she will be taken to her mother's house when she's three to six months pregnant, and she will be taken care of and nurtured and pampered, and she doesn't do any work, and she's just nurtured in this way that's really lovely. And, um, Makes me want
0: to get pregnant in Sri Lanka. Right. You know?
1: Yeah. And then she has the baby, and then there's more time where she's just kept at home and taken care of. Yeah. We have one of the lowest infant mortality rates and mothers dying in childbirth rates in the country, and in fact,
0: or in the world, you mean. in the
1: world, sorry, in the world. Um, and in fact, there's this great program of um midwives that goes out and also checks in on the mo- pregnant mother, and then checks in with the child, and. They follow through to, I think, the first year of life. So it's much more taken care of.
0: And you know what? And, and paid leave and all this yes. kind of stuff. Like the United States is is obscenely behind obscenely. the curve and on Obscenely, and these this. women
1: are sort of just, it's so different from what I'm talking about. So they're just sort of thrown into this, and then you have your baby, and then you're supposed to go back to work, right? and um, then you're supposed to lose a baby weight. There just seems to be like this tremendous pressure that makes motherhood... Um, fraught yeah in a certain way that i don't i when i was growing up and even in sri lanka when i'm around pregnant women it's not fraught it's not fraught in the same way um and i that that's part of where this book is coming from
0: it's, it just seems like a lot more compassionate
1: much more compassionate and much more normal having yeah. kids in sri lanka is like it's just normal it's and taken care of and the family comes in and there's just like extended family. I mean, there's problems with that, of course. I mean, the early part of my book is about some other stuff, which it's. I don't want to paint it as idyllic, but um, the pregnant woman is taken care of and the young mother is taken care of a way, in a way that we don't have here.
0: So you thought about, you were thinking about all this stuff, but in uh, in your own life decided not to have kids.
1: Right. Um, so yeah, I've, I'm i one of those women that have never felt the maternal it's never, um, I love, like, kids are fun. I have this beautiful two-year-old niece who I'm so glad is uh, two years old because if she was born any earlier, I couldn't have written this book. Like, I just couldn't have gone to that place with it because, you know, she's, like, running around. And she, um, she, so she has names for everyone in our family. And she actually calls me Ami, which means mother, because oh. she can't say Lokwami, which means big mother, which is your sister's older sister. Okay. So, she, and so, it's just like, oh, my God, this is like a crazy piece of this. So, since she was born, I'm so glad she was born earlier. I couldn't have written this book.
0: Wow. Yeah. Good job, kid. I know. <laughs> Good <laughs> timing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And did you, like, how did the the experience you had with the first book uh, color your experience with the second? I mean, did it did you help you manage expectations? Did you go... Because I think there's always this tendency, no matter how much we know about the realities of publishing, yeah. it's hard to snuff out that hope. And I don't think it's something that necessarily should be snuffed out. But you know what I'm saying? Like that, that sense of excitement and like maybe it's going to be the one, you know what I'm saying? The one of the lucky... It's th-
1: such a roller coaster. Yeah. It's a con... It doesn't stop.
0: It doesn't stop. It
1: doesn't stop. Like, you know, you you know, you know, sort of pass the publication line and you're like, oh my God, now I'm an author, uh, capital A and... It's up and down. Does your book sell? Is it selling this month? You know, how many readings did you do? Did somebody like a piece you wrote? Are the good reviews good? I don't actually read reviews. My husband reads my reviews, so that's right. fine. Okay. Um,
0: and what about what about your uh, your international readership and relationships with publishers there? It would seem like maybe like if you've established yourself mm-hmm. as a voice and as kind of a bridge to Sri Lankan culture or just to someplace other than America, stateside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you have that readership, and then there's the uh, diaspora Mm -hmm. that's here, and then people who are interested in reading about other cultures here, but then you also have... Your Sri Lankan readership, maybe your well, Indian readership, like is
1: right, right. Well, there's a whole bunch of different parts of that. I have a Sri Lankan readership, but Sri Lanka is very small. Right. I have an Indian readership, but again, uh, India has a giant readership. It's like a, n- a sort of a million people now reading in English in, in India, a huge new middle class, and they all want to read in English, but they're not li- reading literary fiction. Mm. They're reading sort of pulpy books, mostly about Hindu mythology. Okay. Huge, huge, huge. So there are these books that have like Shiva shirtless on the cover and he's like buff, huge <laughs> muscles. Yeah. And those books are hugely popular. I mean, when I was in Jaipur, there were lines around the block for the author uh-huh. who was writing that stuff. And they're like, You know, 40 people in line for me and the other Sri Lankan writer, which is fine, which is great. but
0: 40 smartest people in India. Uh,
1: There you go. (laughs) (laughs) We're there for the Sri Lankan writers. Sorry, Indians, don't get mad. Um, But, I mean, the other part of this is, like, in terms of my Sri Lankan audience, my book, my first book is quite controversial, Mm. especially in Sri Lankan diasporic terms. So there are people that feel like it's too pro-Tamil. I'm Sinhalese. So I, I get, I mean, I have um, detractors who um, have said, you shouldn't read that book. It's too political. I, it's not political at all. There's not really any politics. It's just a story of two women going through this war. So, you know, in, even in Sri Lanka, when I first launched the book, the government that had ended that war, which is now being investigated for war crimes, mm. they were in charge of all the media in the country and they wrote scathing quote-unquote reviews, saying personal things.
0: about you? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow.
1: They called me a cheerleader from L.A. I really shouldn't give this guy more <laughs> fodder because he loves listening to everything I say. And... Were
0: you a cheerleader? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: also live in the Bay Area, so I'm not, I, you know, I guess I'm from L.A., but.
0: Oh, okay. I thought they had some info on you. no. Like no they no. found, like, your junior high yearbook or no, something. No,
1: I mean, the claim is, like, well, she lives in America. She doesn't know anything about this war.
0: And did you struggle with that at all? Because it's yes. interesting that yeah. uh, you know, creatively, even though you've lived almost all of your life outside of Sri Lanka, yes, you know, in, in the world of your imagination, it's where you re- it's where you go back to.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I had huge authenticity questions, right? Like when I was writing the book, like, how dare I? I don't didn't grow up there. I should let people that grew up there write this novel. But you, I don't think you choose. I don't think I chose. This is the book that came and sort of slapped me in the face and said, you're going to write me. I'm like, okay, we're going to go on this long, long, terrible, scary, horrible journey. Um, <laughs> you know,
0: that's a, a f- that's a good title for a children's yeah, book.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there you go. I'll write that one. Um, so I didn't choose it. S- and I think I'm really glad and lucky that it came out in Sri Lanka first, that so the first publisher was Sri Lankan, because that is some form of, actually like the biggest form of acceptance and saying like, yeah, people that grew up here and went through this war see themselves reflected at least to some point in this book. Mm. So that actually meant a tremendous amount to me. I think that if it had been published elsewhere before that would have been still a question for me. And I mean now I go I go to Sri Lanka every year like I'm going in May and I'm teaching a writing workshop to youth that have experiences of war. So it's called Right to Reconcile and we have um singular tamil muslim kids from all over the country and some from the diaspora and we go into the really remote border villages where there have been battles where all the
0: you mean recently or like pre pre end of war in 2000 i mean i'm
1: going in may okay but there i mean people are so traumatized yeah 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 i just meant
0: that like there's not still active fighting
1: there's no active fighting okay um it active fighting ended in 2009
0: okay I just didn't know if, like in the remote villages no. if there were still like spats, no, okay. but if
1: you go up north, I was there in January and you go up north I mean up in Jaffna, the population you can still- tell is still like tremendously traumatized yeah. because of a cut off for about twenty years you know
0: this is what's so fucked up about war. it's like I feel like a lot of times speaking like as an American, you watch the government and like you watch the the actors on the stage talking about it and. You know, not all of them, but a lot of them. It just seems like such they have no idea casualness, like no such idea. a casual attitude about these incredibly uh, uh, dark decisions. Absolutely, that the consequences of which are felt for. I mean, who knows how many years? Right. You know that it's not it's like Vietnam has not left a lot of people. Uh, the World War II. I mean, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? There's. I mean, there, there's probably not very many, if any. I'm yeah, trying to think I mean, of those,
1: those leaders have no clue. So, so when we were in Jaffna, um, I was in Sri Lanka in January for this literary festival. And we did it in a really pretty town in the south with the 94 writers. Tons and tons of people came and saw us. And then six writers, one of them, including Shyam Silvadray, who's the guy I was reading in high school, who's to... my friend. Oh, my God. We teach Right to Reconcile together, which blows my mind. He's amazing. I love him. Wow. Anyway, so he took six writers up north to Jafna, which is the old active war zone and we take the train up which is seven hours of the most gorgeous landscape you've ever seen in your life like zipping by paddy fields and egrets it's just absolutely gorgeous and it stops at a certain station and then suddenly the train takes off and goes much quicker and I'm like, Shyam, why are we going much quicker? He's like, oh this is where the Tigers bombed this train in the 80s And then they left the train with just burnt on the tracks for years and years. And this north-south train ride was stopped. So there was no entry into the north. Anyway, so that's one thing. We go to Jaffna and we're doing our festival in the Jaffna library, which was burnt down by paramilitaries in 81. It's been rebuilt. And, you know, like I've written a book about this, but it's not theoretical up there mm. it's like in the audience are ex tigers and people that survived and just um so it's not theoretical you know like i'm writing fiction and one kid stood up and Chaim and i were on a panel and this kid said you know i lived here in jaffna through the war we stood in line from 3 a.m to 3 p.m to buy a bag of rice like why are you not writing about us and we're like, well, I have written about the war, but I can't say that to this kid, right? So I'm like, I think you should write about it. And it's interesting because earlier, a couple of years before, the question used to be, why have you written about us? So I think it is a nice thing that now people are saying, why haven't you written about us? So yeah. now they're like getting Now they're ready. pissed at you for a yeah, different reason. Yeah, yeah. Progress. <laughs> Progress. <laughs> so that's nice. You know? So,
0: yeah. yeah well, uh, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Uh, congratulate you on all of your, your hard-won success. And, you know, your courage in dropping out and uh, pursuing this. My dad's
1: really happy now. I have to say that. Yeah. See? See, dad? There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But no,
0: but for the courage uh, to have, you know, following your your heart and having the courage of your convictions and then persevering, which is what it takes. So congrats on that and best of luck on your third novel, which is actually your fourth novel. Yeah. And uh, whatever else comes next.
1: Thanks so much, Brad.
0: All right, folks, there you go. Naomi Munawira, her novel is called What Lies Between Us, available now from St. Martin's Press. You can follow Naomi on Twitter. Her handle is at Naomi Munawira. She's also on the Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget, this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. Jesus, let me turn this down. Hang on. So, uh, yeah, the app, the other people with Brad Listy the app, go find it wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen. And if you want to sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app, it gets you access to everything. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. If you want all 400 and, uh, what 14, you sign up for premium. It's uh, 75 cents a month. Great way to support the show. If you want to email me, the address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other I would like to thank uh, everyone who tweeted at me Those questions I'm now uh, thinking back to what I said I'm sure I had better answers I just tried to answer them spontaneously First thing that came to mind Doing the best I can The douchiest thing I've seen in LA I've seen a lot of douchey things I've seen bros hitting on girls at the gym in really overt ways what did I see the other day it's, see the thing about it is that you have these moments and they're fleeting and they're hard to remember but I was I was watching a personal trainer work with a uh, actress girl super pretty not famous but like super like on TV for something super pretty and he said something about like somehow the word sex came up. And then, like, it got Freudian, and he said something about sex, and then she was, like, awkward, like, dude, that was inappropriate. You know what I'm saying? It was like that kind of thing, but I can't remember it. That was a deeply unsatisfying anecdote. You're welcome. Please remember that Simone Weil died at age 34, and that Carl Jung's wife was, by way of inheritance, one of the wealthiest women in Europe. That's all for now. I'd like to thank Naomi Munawira for being here, talking to me putting up with my uh, questioning my incessant questioning thanks to you guys for listening as always I really appreciate that thank you for uh, sharing word about the show on social media that helps and uh, I'll be back again next week with another conversation with another uh, writerly human being somebody who uh, does this with their time and uh, we'll, we'll just keep it going 415 episode 415 coming at you next week I believe it's is that right I think I have that right Daddy, what's the apocalypse? I think I What did I say? It was the end of the world (laughs) When's that gonna happen? It just spirals with kids You pull that thread But I have a policy I gotta try to be honest I'm sorry to have to tell you this, honey, but it's all going to go up in smoke.